Life in all its myriad forms cover the jewel of the solar system, Earth. The planet we call home boasts an amazing array of flora and fauna, with the dominant species, us, perched atop the global food chain. But is that perch as secure as we believe it to be? And as we look down, do we truly see all that exists in the shadow of the pedestal of our own creation? Or does hubris blind us to that which we cannot easily see? There are those who say winged creatures glide through moonlit skies or glare from the darkness with crimson eyes. Are the plaster cast footprints filling display cases in museums around the globe proof of the existence of the creature indigenous people of North America named Sasquatch in bygone days? Or are they all part of an elaborate hoax perpetrated against an all too often gullible society? And are we justified in embracing the evidence of eyewitness accounts and other evidence, or equally justified in denying that any new thing could be discovered under the burning light of day or the cool rays of a full moon? Are cryptids such as Mothman and Bigfoot actual living creatures, or do they only haunt the fertile forests and fields that border the pathways leading through the shadows of legend? Hello, this is Charles Romans, your host for Shadows of Legend. Today we're speaking with Richard Rellis. He's from Hendersonville, North Carolina. He's uh, been a BFRO investigator for, uh, well, since about 2014, 2015, and he owns the business I Know Squatch. So how are you today, Richard? I'm great, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. And uh, you've got a wealth of information to provide to the cryptid community. And in your own words, I guess, just kind of uh, give me a timeline. What got you started? Was it a personal experience or did you just develop an interest or how did that happen? It was a personal experience and I wasn't looking for Bigfoot or Sasquatch. It was not top of mind for me. Um, and I was traveling across northern part of Wisconsin with a business associate. We saw something cross the road in front of us and we did not know what it was. So I, the thing I remember distinctly was that it appeared to be bipedal and it was very tall and it was reddish brown. But we saw it cross two lanes of oncoming traffic and a grass median and then two lanes in front of us and then uh, down an embankment and up over a fence. And it just, it was a head scratcher. No, I'd never seen anything like it. Um, gentleman I was with, we talked about it for a couple of weeks, and we were thinking elk or a moose, and we were doing a bunch of research trying to figure none of them in that area. And uh, this is about an hour northwest of Green Bay. And he dismissed it as such. I, I couldn't get it out of my head. I just kept digging and digging into it. And uh, within a few months, found a lot of witness accounts with the BFRO online, and uh, one that was very similar up towards sturgeon bay which is north of green bay about an hour or so and it was a very similar description exactly of what i saw and it just shook me i can still remember reading that and saying to myself oh my god bigfoot i, I never well, thought it would send a chill down your spine uh to to realize that, that something really just stepped out of essentially a storybook and ran right in front of your car yeah and uh the it, the size of it the enormity it, it was very large and it was just hard to understand what it was. Uh, I have seen these things since because I, I research and I go out on witness reports, investigate, I've led expeditions. I had a research area I went into in Wisconsin for a number of years. But uh, I have been out in the woods researching or in expeditions from many, many states across the United States. And I have had encounters with these things. I know they're real. 
I've seen them subsequent to that. Uh, but initially, and I've noticed this with witnesses who see something like this first time, it is a shock. Like I said, you just, it shocks your mental system. You just don't know what the heck you're seeing. Well, no, your brain plays tricks on you. It's like, no, I didn't see that. I mean, it, it, had, <laughs> it had to have been something else. Right. But, but now when you see something, uh, the go-to is, oh, it was a bear because bears can walk on two feet. But uh, really, the description, other than big and hairy, isn't comparable between a bear and a Sasquatch. They, they just aren't. Yeah, I have a, a couple of things that I've learned since then, and uh, I'm always indebted to the BFRO for the couple of things. One is the database, but a second thing is that uh, they have these Class A, Class B, and Class C sightings and guidelines that go with that. And the Class A sighting means you definitively know what you saw was not a bear or a human in order for it to rank as a Class A. And I knew this thing the first time I saw it was not a bear or a human. And, you know, uh, another point as a, you know, relative to a bear, a bear will stand up, can be bipedal for a moment or so. You can find videos online of them kind of wandering along a little bit on two legs and they'll waddle a little, but they locomote eventually in a quadrupedal fashion. Yes. Bigfoot does not. I have seen it subsequent to that. And talked about that on some other shows and things but the one i saw in virginia in 2018 was it was massive and the speed in which it ran you know it's not a bear it's on two legs and it's it's like it glides when these things really get to moving uh it's it's movement like you've never seen it's almost like they're on skates see that's that's amazing there would definitely be something to see well yeah and uh you know you trust your eyes you trust your you know with all the tech we have we do and it's a you know, citizen science, uh, amateur research type of field. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I'm sympathetic to that. We all kind of do the best we can out there collecting evidence, et cetera. But uh, you rely on your senses first. And eyes can play tricks on you. Mind can play tricks on you, et cetera. But when you get a visual imprint on one of these things or ticks multiple senses at the same time, it is it is overwhelming. I mean, it's amazing. You know, I woke up after seeing this uh, one I saw in 18, I woke up the next day saying, how can anything that big be that powerful and that fast? It, it surprises you. I interviewed another gentleman from Canada, actually, and he was talking about a Bigfoot chasing and overtaking a herd of caribou. And mm. it, it mm. terrified him so much, he stopped watching before it caught them. Mm. But to see something that big move that fast. And I remember during that conversation, I told him, I said, well, you know, most of these encounters are within trees and things like that. But in an mm -hmm. open tundra, of course, then he would uh, have plenty of room to let the stops out and run at full speed. Right. And you realize right. how powerful yeah, and, that creature is. Right. And it's amazing that something you know, would, as you said, go after a herd of caribou. I mean, they're large, powerful animals. There's a lot of them. You know, it just tells you a lot about this. You know, this is an apex predator. Yes, if they, if the river is one, yes, it would be. <laughs> right. So I want to back up just a second here, and just to clarify for the listeners here, you said you are a BFRO investigator. Would you clarify that for for the listeners? Sure. The Bigfoot Field Research Organization has uh, folks around the country. It's you know, and we're all just volunteer research people. But uh, uh, and there is you know, there's some training and. We have some best practices we go through relative to following up on witness reports, but we get reports from around the nation that people have encounters, can report, go on BFRO.net and can file a report and discuss and, you know, post a report of 
a sighting or an experience that could possibly be Bigfoot. A person like myself, geographically, I follow up on them for parts of northern South Carolina, western North Carolina. Uh, I go into sometimes into Tennessee, et cetera, but uh, I follow up on reports, contact the people that filed it, talk with them, sometimes go on out and visit them, go to the location that the sighting or the event happened and try to really vet it out. Uh, we discard the ones that are not useful or, God forbid, hallucinogenic or, or hoaxes. And you do get hoaxes. People will hoax us. But it's the people that really have a witness report. A lot of times after having done it, you see similarities and behavioral similarities, and they will relate to you things that have gone on sometimes on a homestead, a property, or or a singular event like I had where they someone saw one cross the road. But you find behavioral characteristics that are similar, descriptive characteristics that are similar, even the way it moves sometimes as we were just discussing that are similar. And a lot of that will play into validating. So uh, you know, we do take them through the, you know, the questions, who, what, what, you know, when, where, why, and try to make sure it is what it is. But sometimes you can see emotionally on people the impact it makes, to your point earlier. And, you know, people, you can tell that it shook them when they saw something or they experienced something like this. I, I would say that a lot of the hesitation is, uh, well, I, I hear this a lot. People say, well, you know, I don't want you to think I'm crazy. And... <laughs> I hear that from from researchers who uh, people contact me, everything from cryptids to the supernatural, things like that. They hear that a lot, and I, I hear it a lot. Uh, people are afraid a lot of times to share their stories because they don't want other people to think that they're mentally unstable or that they've been smoking something or drinking something. So. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. And sometimes, uh, you know, I had a witness years ago who, well, he, you know, he held office in the town he was in, and generations of his family at a large large piece of property, but they'd all had experiences with Bigfoot phenomena, actually some other things too that were kind of crazy, paranormal, UFOs, et cetera. But when he finally talked with me about it, he broke into tears and it's like, you got to understand our family is notary in the county and held office over the years. It's not something we can talk about publicly. And, you know, so there are those things that get into it too. People don't want to professionally have it affect them negatively. Well, of course not. I mean, we we have come into an era that uh, things like this are more acceptable to talk about and just discuss more rationally. But that's not always been the case. And if you have, well, if you have a social position within the community and things of that nature, then you really don't want to give, well, for instance, your political enemies ammunition that they might be able to use against you. Right. But well, yeah, yeah, that's right, and. Uh... To your point on people, the way it gets treated very dismissively by media, etc. It's always a joke when it comes to the Bigfoot thing. The nice thing, uh, good thing to your point, last couple of years, there's more talk about what's not UFO now, it's UAPs and etc. But there's things coming forth from the military and review in Congress, etc. So it is more commonly talked about some of the paranormal things. And uh, of course, the first step to uh, proving anything and gathering information is is to have a dialogue about it, a rational dialogue, and and treat it seriously. Right. Which right. Ma- you, makes yeah. you a, a wonderful guest because here you, you treat this seriously, and it sounds to me like you, of course, you're, you're able to uh, have the disconnect. You're not going to just believe. Somebody said, oh, I saw three Bigfoot sitting on my back porch. You're not going to just instantly believe them, but you will 
consider it and research it. And I think that overall helps the field. Yeah. And it's important to get the evidence and get out. And, you know, I always tell folks on an expedition, not every noise in the woods is a Bigfoot. Not every report that's filed some are misinterpretations, uh, some are wild imaginations, especially since the show Finding Bigfoot and now Expedition Bigfoot, all those things are out there and yes. everybody's got a cell phone. But you know, people think everything they hear or see in the woods on a hike or on the walk home from school and, you know, it's Bigfoot in the woods kind of thing. So you, you got to sometimes have to sober people up and talk it through. But when you do find things, when you go on out and you vet out, a report like this and you find evidence. You know, I had one a little while ago, not too, but an hour east of me. And you know, the witness, well, they had, the, it was family had a lot of animals uh, in their house and a lot of yes. birds, big, you know, macaw and all that sort of thing. But he sends me images because they were having fires outside in a fire pit. And he was saying they felt like they were being watched. And they used to, you know, put food out for squirrels and thing. All the food would disappeared quickly. But uh, he, uh, I went to his house, I went to family's house, talked to them, and he shows me pictures of where a Bigfoot had come down the, the hill and walked right through their fire pit and walked across their driveway. And of course, the ashes from the walkthrough left great footprints, Yes, which I, file, which I file with the report. But I mean, here are these, you know, 16-inch footprints with toe marks and everything from the ash. The darn thing just walked right through the fire pit after. Now, this is after... It must have been watching, and then it rained, and it was able to do that. But it stepped yes. in the fire pit, walked across the driveway, and left a trail of ash. And the footprints were, you know, pushing on four feet apart. Now, that's great evidence. And then they had had another activity where, you know, these things were close to their backyard and pushed a tree over. Now, he showed me the tree that was pushed over right up next to their house because they were coming up and taking the food that was left out for the squirrels. They'd reach over a fence, and the fence was all bent down where they had been doing that. So... I had a lot of good evidence in this. Yes. This isn't runaway imagination. And, you know, those th those things you look for when you investigate. You go on out to someone's property and you see things like that and kind of falls in line. I also know that behaviorally, these things are curious and they'll push over trees when things aren't going their way. So, you know, it was uh, that, that was compelling. I would say that that would have been a, a, an amazing investigation. I'd like, to have, <laughs> I'd like to have been part of that one. Were, were you able to get any casts or anything of footprints? Yeah, not at that one. I did take pictures of all the footprints of Alderman with our report, et cetera, which is great. And uh, uh, But, yeah, I have, over the years, with different experiences, been fortunate enough to get footprint casts. Uh, I have one right now. Uh, it's about 45 minutes to an hour north west of Asheville up in the mountains and I can't, you know, give it away because of privacy, et cetera, but I'm an amazing footprint, uh, on a construction site and we've cast it and I'm duplicating, I'm working with the witness to duplicate it now, but just an amazing footprint, amazing cast. And I like that kind of evidence. You can see the dermal ridges in the cast, all the toes, uh, toes are quite long in it also, but you know, great evidence. And, uh, you like when you get that, when you're on an expedition and you have some activity, you're out at night on a night hike and something happens and you go back the next day to investigate the area and you find a uh, footprints and you can cast some of them. That's validation. You know, that's the kind of thing we look for. So what do you think are some of the, the biggest challenges to, to your research? Um, well, to your early, what you said, I, I think is good. People are more interested these days, which years ago, it was hard to discuss it with anybody. I even five, 10 years ago, I think now it's more open uh, so it's less of a challenge discussion wise. Uh, you got to watch out in terms of research things on on the internet, AI and everything else. There's a lot of 
I'm parts of different, you know, groups around the country with other researchers and some investigators. And we're always looking at images being posted and you get a lot of AI type things these days. That's a challenge to the research uh, from a visual standpoint. But good news is equipment wise, it's way better now. You can get a thermal image and take a picture of it. You can get good audio recordings and you can put them on SoundCloud or, uh, you know, if you're a real audiophile audacity or something and you can see where the on the spectrum, the voice or the vocalizations fall relative to human. That's all good stuff. We didn't have that five, 10 years ago. Oh, absolutely so, not. <laughs> yeah, so from a technical standpoint, you can, you know, you can get gather evidence now and you can, uh, you can really review it and uh, see if it's something that's other than bear or human to our prior point. So uh, for an amateur researcher, like say somebody had experienced this and they were wanting to report this to you, uh, how would you suggest that they gather this information? Well, if it's someone who had a, an experience, the best thing you could do is write down and keep a log okay. of who, what, when, where, why, you know, the, the things occurred and uh, anything that, they can recall relative to an incident or sometimes repeated incidents. Uh, Bigfoots are curious. If they come around property, they don't do it singularly. Once in a while, I mean, I just went out on one. It was one across, uh, you know, this guy's property. But uh, sometimes, you know, they follow waterways and things. And if that's close to your property, sometimes they come around more often than not. And they kind of peek around and check things out. So, you know, I, I like if someone can keep a log on activity. That's That's always good. You know, whether you're researching, if, if it's something on a property, you're going out to research, or you're out in the woods, walking around, et cetera, you can't trick these things. Yeah, I just looked again the other day at um, a trail cam picture, and uh, what you wind up with a lot of time is it looks like a mullet from one of these things that goes fast past the trail cam. And, yes. And the trail cams, I don't rely on that a lot. It's rare you're going to get something really, really good on that. Sometimes you can. You get a picture of a deer. And if, there's one that I remember that I think finding Bigfoot out on the show, and it was up in, and I met the folks that took the shot, it was up in um, I think UP of Michigan. But uh, they had a trail cam that got a deer in the foreground. You could see the Bigfoot in the distance near a tree kind of spying the deer. That was pretty good evidence. But that's few and far between on trail cams. I think when the trail cam shoots off the IR, as it opens, the lens is going to fire and it's going to take the image and they see that. And these things move pretty quick and get out of there. If you get a hand or a half of a head or a mullet, like I said, when it goes by, they're kind of just doing that on purpose because it's hard to trick these things with tech. So I wouldn't over rely too much on that. I think you rely on your senses. Audio recordings are great. Always have a, we always have a recorder going when we're out researching or on an expedition. First thing we do, we get out of a vehicle or we walk down a trailhead is turn on an audio recorder because you never know what you're going to get. But uh, keeping a, a log of your you know, of things that go on and uh, a recorder, those are two of the best things you can do. Well, you know, based on, on what you just said, <laughs> it would seem to that, that you're implying that these uh, creatures have more than animal intelligence. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, you know, you probably talked to some other folks about this topic. I'd be interested in what you have to say about it, but uh, I firmly believe they have more than just a guttural instinct. Uh, I think there's a type of intelligence that's resident in these things that uh, may be intelligence we don't have also. You know, we have a tendency to think the world revolves around us as human beings. and Absolutely we're, right. <laughs> you know, we're the smartest, but these things have smarts we don't have. Well, we, we think that all intelligence, all superior intelligence, for instance, has to be human-like in nature, and it really doesn't. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And in fact, there may be intelligences out there that we are unable to measure simply because we can't comprehend how it operates. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. And we have a tendency of thinking intelligence is singular often because that's how we approach the world with iPods and iPhones and everything. But I think these things have a collective intelligence too. Yeah, you know, we, that's interesting. Uh, not necessarily a hive mind like in, insects would have, but uh, more of a communal mind. I know that that sounds like I'm splitting hairs, but there would be a difference. Yeah, we and some of us as researchers will talk about the. Uh, you know, is is a communal, you know, I haven't heard that term, but, you know, we've used hive or hive mind. So it seems like they can tap into what maybe another one might experience. They seem to understand intent Yes. before, you know, before we get to them or we're around them. I think they're smart enough to stay stealth and stay away from us and hunters, et cetera. But if they don't want you around, they'll let you know. Well, you know, if, if uh, and I've said this before, if you take a creature, for instance, its entire life is dependent upon its ability to blend in and vanish, you're probably not going to find it unless it wants you to. Yeah, and uh, you know, I was having a I was having a discussion uh, recently about mountain lions with uh, someone, and uh, you know, I, I just think any of the folks out there, the rangers, bark rangers, national state forest, etc., just never think they treat the subject of. You know, big cats very well. It's constant. Oh, no, they're not around here. But uh, there's just an article in the paper a couple of days ago about a jaguar seen out west that, has, you know, was not even thought to be on this continent. So, you know, I, I know folks that have seen black panthers in this part of the country. And, oh, no, there's none of them here. Mountain lions, no, they're not around here. <laughs> it just seems like that's a creature that if it, want, it doesn't want to be seen. But Rome says a great, there's a big population and seems to get around pretty well on the stealth mode on its own. And, um, you know, they're a singular type animal. I do not believe Bigfoot are singular. And if they don't want to be seen, they're not going to be seen. And when you combine that with the, the fact that they move so quickly, if uh, they, they want to get away from you, all you're going to catch is noise in a lot of cases. Yeah, and they'll make noise if they if they don't want you around, as I was saying earlier. You know, they'll push a tree over or they'll stomp on the ground i've heard all these things over the years i'm routinely out in the woods and on expeditions at night night hikes scouting etc and and they'll do you can tell when they're around i mean you couldn't feel it but you'll hear them if they want to be stealth they'll stay stealth but if they want you to hear they'll break sticks they'll do knocks they'll whoops whistles but if they don't want you around you know they'll throw rocks they'll push trees over so you have to pay attention to how they're treating the situation. <laughs> yes. Yeah, kind of read the room, as it were. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. If they don't want if they don't want you there, I I go. You can tell. Yeah, they definitely. I would I would assume we definitely would let you know from everything that that I've uh, heard. And uh, mm-hmm. there seems to be some people think they, the question of the smell. Uh, some people seem to think that the smell is an intentional thing that they put out. Uh, it, but they don't always smell that way. See, it's kind of like a musk. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know if they if they don't always smell. They may always smell to well, some degree, but yes. but they can use it. Not like a like a gland, like a skunk will have, where it sends that off directionally. I don't believe it's that because it doesn't hit you and stick to you. I see. But it does stink in your nose. But they can use it. It might experience all of a sudden it hits you like a wall or you go off a trail down another trail and boom there it is and it does hit you like a like it's permeating it's it is like a wall it's intense so do think to your point they can use it if they want to to repel you or to get you to stop 
you know, and, and that to step back here just a bit about the, the whole communal intelligence thing, uh, one of the things I was going to mention, I, I had read a study uh, on how humans developed uh, nonverbal cues, as it were. And they seem to think that crying is one of those things that you can tell a fellow human from a distance without making noise that you're in pain, that there's danger and things like that, mm. which I, I'm not sure the exact extent of that. But if we have developed nonverbal cues that can communicate ideas and concepts and everything else, there's no reason why a creature like Sasquatch couldn't have developed numerous ones of those. And, and from a distance, from sight, hearing, you know, smell, that they would be able to communicate. It wouldn't necessarily have to be, uh, quote, unquote, some sort of uh, bizarre ESP. It, it, it could just be communal clues. Yeah, um, it's fascinating. I always wonder why sometimes when you're with them and there's multiple around, and I guess I'd make the point for your listeners, there's never one. I don't okay. believe they're ever singular. I always believe they're in groups, and there could be 100 yards between each of them that they're still in a group. But uh, And I also believe they're in their social order, they all have duties, if you will. Yes. One may be a sentry, another may be the matriarch gathering the youth or the juveniles, another might be the patriarch that you know, when it's time to get rid of the pesky humans shows up and stomps on the ground or pushes a trio. You know, they, I think they have their duties, but they don't need to communicate and vocalize to your point necessarily, yes. but they do. They will, they'll whistle, they'll knock, they'll whoop. Sometimes we hear, hear loud. I was on a scouting trip recently in the Blue Ridge mountains just a few weeks ago. And, uh, we heard, vocalizations literally every night one night we heard nine of them in a row we had started some of them but they were coming from a long distance away down a valley near a mountain uh, back up to us but we counted off nine of them and i still believe it's from a singular creature but why do they vocalize so loud and so so often if they unless they have to you know to each other even sometimes they'll not i've heard them knock like crazy a uh, rock clack back and forth so the multiple ways to communicate, what what dictates which one they want to use. And other times it seems like they communicate without any nonverbal type cues or tactile type cues. I don't know why. Well, again, it comes back to what we discussed earlier. Uh, it doesn't have to be the way we communicate for it to be communication. It's just in the same way, it doesn't have to be our type of intelligence to be intelligent. Right, right. Yeah, so ultimately, ultimately, it's hard for us to understand or comprehend everything, but you know, those types of communication must serve a purpose for these things. And they were probably developed over time for a purpose or they have them intuitively or, you know, have them. You know, I don't know if they're indigenous creatures or not, but they do have abilities to what we said earlier that yes. we don't have. Well, you know, and that uh, speaks to uh, there is a, uh, a school of thought that uh, creatures like Sasquatch aren't really indigenous to Earth, but they're just uh, travelers through pocket dimensions or things of that nature, and that they're only here part of the time, which is why we haven't found bodies and things like that. Yeah, and uh, all of that, I, I like to discuss all that. It's hard to to validate i don't know uh one way or the other people say okay what camp are you in and when you get into research after a while especially in this area it's uh well is it are you a uh, flesh and blood investigator type person that's uh that goes into an undiscovered ape or a relic hominid is a, one of the latest things that is said yes. or do you think it's a trans-dimensional 
paranormal creature, et cetera, et cetera. You know what? I don't know. I don't know what it is. I really well, see, don't. I don't either. I just, just mentioned <laughs> that that was one of, one of the schools of thought. There's even yep. a school of thought that thinks Bigfoot is the indigenous population of the earth and we're the aliens. <laughs> so, yeah. so well, I don't know. You know and, and I'm not laughing know. because I'm making fun of it. I'm laughing because there are so many theories and proving any of those is, is incredibly difficult. Well, it is. I look at it like it's all evidence whether I'm casting a footprint or you see, I'll just say it. You see a, a flash of blue light in the woods or a, cue ball colored orb moving down the trail behind you. And to me, it's all evidence. Yes. And, and I'm okay with that. I, I can live with that. I don't have to catalog it, put it into, you know, research folks have got a catalog, got to put it on one side of the ledger or the other and either disqualify it or to say for sure it's real. You know, that I, I'm not caught up in that. I just, you know, experienced a lot of different things researching this over the years and I'm okay with it all being evidence. Well, see, I am too, because, I mean, I've always thought of it in this manner. I don't have all the information, so I am not able to judge definitively one way or the other. So because I don't have the the qualifications to do that, then I can just gather evidence and try to correlate this evidence as best as possible and see what happens. Because if I already knew, there would be no reason to search. Right, right. Yeah, and... You know, I don't know where the knowing or what you know or what you learn ends yes. with these things. I, I, I really don't. You know, we could uh, research this for a very, very long time and never get to that. I, I agree completely. And you know, I tell people all the time, I said, the, the only real absolute is basic mathematics. Two equal parts plus two equal parts will always end up being four equal parts. Beyond that, things have a tendency to get adjusted. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, you, you just have to kind of roll with it. And on this subject, it's is there good evidence or is it bad evidence or is there just lack of evidence? Even lack of evidence doesn't mean a thing didn't happen. It's just like uh, uh, we we talked I mean, we were uh, next to each other at tables there at uh, Crypticon. Well, yeah. I had spoken to one of the other guests up there. Mountain monsters, and I, I told him, I said, "Look, just because you haven't proven something does exist, doesn't mean you've proven it doesn't." <laughs> and and people forget that that that's what completely blows my mind. They hit a confirmation bias. All right, you can't prove I'm wrong. Henceforth, uh, henceforth, I'm right. Uh, right, and, and that's not exactly how it works. <laughs> <laughs> We're right, I and mean, we get into these equations of logic and things now and uh, if this then that with bigfoot there's evidence yes we don't we can't we can't prove it does not exist right um you know what and it gets back to can you prove it does well what is it i guess in the end it's an enigma phenomena you know my friend of mine was at that at crypticon just yes uh matt pruitt just book out it's great i've been reading his book and he, he calls it a phenomenon the bigfoot phenomenon so that's his way of describing what this is and so uh, it is a phenomenon it's well, uh, if you look basically at the definition of what a phenomenon is it's what bigfoot is so it it does in my mind it does exist we don't know everything about it we're still you know gathering data gathering evidence learning more and more about it what we got to be careful of is that we're not dismissive, as I said. The press often is with this, uh, ha ha ha. It's a big joke, you know. Somebody so big would, you know. You can't yeah. do that. And no. as you get it, as you get into, you can't be dismissive of the other camp too. So uh, okay, if it doesn't fit what I think it is, which is it's an undiscovered primate, and 
roams the mountains of the the western part of the U.S. You know, you can't do that. If you start to dismiss, then you don't invite evidence or new evidence to come along. And I think we're still in the evidence gathering mode. I believe so too. And I, I've always thought that there's a kernel of truth, some small germ of truth in almost anything. There had to be something to generate the tale. And what fascinates me, 3,000 years ago in Tibet, there have legends of, of a Yeti. At the same time, in North America, the indigenous people there were reporting things that we know as Sasquatch. This was long before there was any communication between these two. So there had to be some sort of connection there. Yeah, I'd agree with that. There's a connection. And, yeah, and I'll probably get this wrong, but all the Native American, whatever number of tribes, right? I used to have a map I'd keep in 23 or 28 tribes, whatever it is, the nations of indigenous and Native Americans. They all have a name for it. Yes. Now, they weren't doing that on uh, their cell phones years ago. No, and they all have a name for it, and they depict it on the totem poles. And so if you look at the the one face that shows up that has a more of a pursed lips uh, uh, look to it, uh, that's always told to me that that's the Sasquatch um, that's represented. And that would also, with the pursed lips that it has, kind of fit the whole whooping or whistling type of communication that these things will use. And I've heard the whistling and the whoops many, many times. It, it definitely would. And to be honest about it, since people have a tendency to imitate nature, it would sort of uh, mirror some of the battle cries used by the indigenous people when they fought. <laughs> so, I never thought about that. That's quite insightful. But what, this all, and, and you can uh, agree with me if or disagree however you see fit, but I'm thinking that we have this, this sort of low-grade arrogance. It's kind of like when the British Empire was colonizing virtually everywhere. So they came in and, and they were hearing these tales from an indigenous people about the hairy man of the forest. Well, the and, and not to pick on the British, but, but the initial response was, oh, you're just you know, a superstitious savage. There's nothing like that because they'd never seen it. They didn't have tales of it. So eventually we discovered things like orangutans and mountain gorillas and things like that, which were the hairy men of the forest. <laughs> but for decades and centuries, they were myths and until someone actually found one of them. And if you're dealing with a creature that has the abilities, essentially, of a mountain gorilla or an orangutan and at least human intelligence, you're probably not going to be lucky enough to get the proof that you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's interesting your uh, you know your description of the way again. Uh, so colonization, but dismissive of these wild savages having these myths or these crazy stories. You know, not all of them were just uh, high on peyote and making <laughs> things up. So. That's true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and it's funny we get to this where we are now in 2024 and uh, talking about, you know, a multiplicity of different cryptids, if you will. Yes. Where for, for the longest time, any discussion of it was, uh, you know, verboten it's, that can't be. But now we, we talk about the Mothman and uh, talk about ghosts and ghost research very, very much. Can't turn on TV with tripping over something like that on cable. Uh, oh, UA, we just talked about UAP's acknowledgement by the military of that and, here we are, you and I talking about the essentially the elements of what Bigfoot is, not you know, validation of is there actually such a creature. We're talking about it like, yeah, it's out there, and, and we're talking about the abilities. So the, the discussion's evolved, and that's good. 
But it, it's always good to embrace knowledge rather than supposition, I guess. <laughs> Lack of a better way to put it. Sure. Uh, I, I've always tried to keep an open mind. And like I said before, I think there's a small germ of truth in any, everything. Uh, it's just like for centuries, you know, the Loch Ness Monster, for instance. Now, our science tells us that there used to be creatures similar to that that were on every ocean around the planet. So why would it be beyond the realm of possibilities that a few of them survived? <laughs> right. I mean, I, I, I've never been to Loch Ness, so I, I, I can't really say one way or the other, but uh, uh, to just assume it can't be. And it, it, it kind of boggles the mind. It, it indicates that probably we, we may have intelligence, but maybe we're not as wise as we think we are. <laughs> Well, well, we're not. And again, it's easy to say no to something and then you don't have to deal with it. And I think there's some of that because, uh, well, maybe you're, maybe it's scary. Maybe it's just hard to wrap your mind around it. Maybe it's just easier to stay in your own little, uh, calcified world, if you will, and not, and not have to deal with it. Uh, those who are interested who get beyond all that, you know, I'm, we talked about the way this thing communicates or, yeah what it looks like, et cetera. We have, you know, we're, we're at, we're to the point physically, characteristically talking about things like, uh, a sagittal crest, if you will, or, uh, how the foot flexes when it moves. Uh, Dr. Meldrum's got all the castings and we can see the epidermal ridges and there's loads and loads of those. I mean, we're to the point with, we're into the details of what this thing looks like now, which I think is way better than it was years ago. And we talked a lot about some of the behavioral characteristics. I mentioned vocalizations or stone, stone throwing or breaking trees, pushing trees over. I mean, to me, you know, I've been around this thing in the woods enough when all of a sudden some of those behaviors and I'm with other investigators, we know, we know what it is. Oh yeah, that's a knock. Uh, They'll probably do another one. We'll hear another one from the opposite angle within uh, 10, 15 seconds, bang, up, oh, there's another one. You know, we're getting to the point we're around it. You know, we kind of know uh, some of the things that we'll do. Yes. Uh, these things will do. And so I think all of that's good. And you have to keep an open mind and you have to be willing to get out there and try to embrace this, try to experience it so you can you know, be part of a dialogue, which I'm glad there is one about Bigfoot as to, you know, what it is. But I don't think the research is going to be over soon. Well, see, I don't think so either. It, it, and, and I've said this before. The average person on the street is not going to believe in Bigfoot until there's a family of them living at the zoo. <laughs> and I just don't see that happening. For one thing, I don't think Bigfoot wants to be in a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's too smart to be in a zoo. That's true. And uh, I, I made a joke the other day. I was talking to my producer. I said, you know, you really don't understand. Maybe... Maybe Bigfoot's the zookeeper, and he just wanders through every once in a while ah. to check on the animals. <laughs> but you never know. And Not. but when you get out and get to do the research, like you said, then you can have some tangibles, and and you can build a better picture of of what we think we're looking for. Right, and I, and I'll make this point too. I think there's a lot of them because we are amateur researchers, uh, folks like myself that do this. Uh, you know, there's a couple hundred of us probably that accept this, get out, do research, walk the woods, uh, get on the trails, go to places where the BFRO will vet out. Investigators like myself will vet out these reports and you can see where they are collectively by county in a state. And some counties are very active. And of course, and you say, why, why is that? And 
and the characteristics maybe of the topography or the land or the food supply and these things are omnivores uh all of a sudden you start to realize oh there's maybe there's a maybe there's a group of them or groups of them there yeah. and then we go out we go on out we hold expeditions and invite folks and uh get out in the woods at night and put ourselves in places to be viewed. Yes. Cause I don't think, I don't think you can get out and out tech these things, as I said earlier, and I don't think you can trick them and I don't think you can out, you know, you're not going to hunt them. I always say we're researching, not hunting, but you get yourself in a position where maybe they come around and they have an experience, but that happens. I'm just going to say it more than you'd think. Now we can't all be that good at this. So how can that be? And if we're having some interaction and we're a handful of us doing this around the country, you know, X number of expeditions a year in different places. What about all the private land? What about the land that's not, um, you know, it's not researched, it's not covered. Look at Canada. Look at all the forest uh, that's out there, the forest land we never get into. There's got to be, unless there are only a handful of them around where we are, there's got to be an awful lot of them. So a lot of the debate goes beyond what are their characteristics physically or how do they behave to how many are there, you know, and because once you accept that they're there, then it's, well, how big is the population? How many do you think there are? And then there's a wide range of debate from hundreds of thousands to hundreds of thousands. And I even know an anthropologist who thinks there's two million of them in North America. So, you know, I don't I don't know what the right answer to that is either. Well, you know, people want to say, and, and I've heard people say this before, oh, with all the drones we have and everything, we, we would know. Well, uh you mentioned the uh, paranormal shows. This one paranormal show starts out 700 million wild acres of forest in the United States. Mm -hmm. There is no way you don't have <laughs> enough drones. <laughs> right. And, you know, I explained it this way before, too. It, it may just be the drones flying through there when Bigfoot's not there. It's like I tell people, my house is built like a, a giant rectangle. And, uh, you know, of course, you go through the living room and the kitchen. You can go all the way through the house through doorways. So if I'm sitting in the back room that I use for an office and you're standing in my living room, then if I walk through the other bedroom, you could walk through the kitchen. and We could virtually pass each other and never know one another was there. So when we're not in my house, we're in a forest with undergrowth and everything else, you could pass within 20 feet of two, three, four Sasquatches and never know that they were there. Yeah, and... Uh... You bring up a good point with the 700 million uh, acres, et cetera. And I mentioned Canada, et cetera. But there's there is so much forest land out there. And these things seem to be on the edge of our civilization. By the way, when I'm out, no, some of us are. I am. But some of us are out in the woods at night marching around trying to look for these things. But most people aren't. The forest right. at night is their domain. They can do whatever they want and go wherever they want. They can sneak right up on and dumpster dive wherever they want to, you know, at night. You know, they can poke around homesteads, and they seem very active between, you know, the 3 to 5 in the morning type of thing. We find that activity on expeditions all the time. They're very active then. But, you know, they know us. We're predictable, and so they can stay around the edges of us if they want to and come around as they need to. And we have a tendency of doing a lot of things over and over, and then they get used to us, and then they do what they want. But they want to get an outbuilding on a homestead, they will. I had a report not too long ago of them uh, coming out of a construction site in this part of the world here. And I guess they had been watching from the woods for a while, but uh, the construction workers were bringing food and would leave the food in the same place all the time for themselves to prepare later. And the things came out of the woods, just took the food and went back in the woods, you know, and the roofers all saw it. So, you know, we're predictable. And, you know, if they observe, they're 
these things are incredible observers, incredibly patient, and they'll watch us. I think we're kind of their entertainment, but if they're opportunistic too, and if you know there's a free meal, they'll come around and grab it if they need to. If they want to interact, they will. If they're curious, they'll come up and poke around, knock on the house, do what they want to. And if they want to just stay away from us, they will. Yeah, I mean, and why, why wouldn't they, actually? <laughs> so, I know. And another thing to go along with that, not only are we predictable, we're noisy. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and and I, I tell this uh, mainly to my friends that live in the city, because I, I live out in the country, okay, uh, to, to freak out my, my friends from the city. I, you know, if I'm up at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to walk outside. I just walk out on the front porch, drink a cup of coffee, whatever. Now, if I hear something crashing in the field next to the house, my first thought is deer. And I've seen deer run out of that field before. But I'm a human being. I can't see in the dark. I can't see it out there. I can definitely can't smell it. It could literally be anything in the field next to my house. And I would have no clue. Right. Now, if I were uh, what you know, nervous or twitchy, apprehensive, I would be telling myself, "Oh, it's just a deer." And and since I've seen deer, I could do that and placate myself and not worry about it and uh, go back in the house. But uh, there could be anything out in that field from uh, a mountain lion to a bear or or Bigfoot. And if it didn't want me to see it, it just wouldn't have to come within field of my vision. Right. And why would it? Yeah, why would it? And, and of course, I turn the light on before I walk outside because I can't see in the dark. And uh, typically, I'm walking outside, I'm coughing and, and everything else. So it's definitely, oh, well, there, there's the old man that lives in the house. We'll just step back until he goes back in the house, and then we'll eat all the cat food once he goes back to bed. <laughs> so, but, right. but people don't understand that, you know. And I, I, I say that, like I said, to get my, my friends from the city going, you know. To, yeah. But uh, but the, the reality of it is it literally could be anything out there. Well, well it could. And uh, your point on the sea in the dark, they can and we can't. Yes. They're very good at seeing it. So something about the eyes with these things. I saw one in Colorado years ago, uh, northwest Colorado. I was on an expedition and the other person was with me. There were five of us, but two of us saw it. It stepped out onto a trail. Uh, duskish, but I do remember vividly. I could see in the face, I could see the eyes, and I couldn't see white in the pupils of the eyes. There, it, it was almost like the eye, which the face it was a brown, a dark brown, this color, almost blackish, but it was like the eye was consumed with a pupil. So something's different with the way their eyes work or bring light in, etc. But I didn't see a white in the eyes. You know, it could even be something like a, a, a an extra membrane or anything in the eye. Right. Without uh, something to study, that we'd have no way to know. But based on your research and seeing the way they act and everything, it would be obvious that they can see well in the dark, if not just like daylight, but they can see well enough to get around and move. And uh, it, and we, we know other creatures have. Uh, cats have excellent night vision. Right. So And all the other nocturnal animals. For, yeah, and you look at that and say, well, why can they see so well in the dark? And I don't know why they're here on Earth, but for some reason, did they need it just to get around at night on Earth? You know, we have a 24-hour cycle, and that's how we invented time as humans to get around. But, you know, half of the day, even the winter, it's a lot longer than that, is dark. Yes. Is, is there ability to see in the dark just for that, or is there ability to see in the dark because 
they needed it for some reason, uh, low ground or whatever. I, you know, I don't know, but they definitely have that ability. Well, then, and it touches on another theory. The reason we haven't found them is because their their living space is actually underground in caverns and things of that nature. So there's so many unknowns to this. And if a creature well, was spending and evolved spending most of its time underground, it would have to have the ability to see in little to no light. Well, and that yeah, that fast that subject actually fascinates me. I've done a bunch of research in Kentucky, but on a number of expeditions there, and uh, uh, a number of friends up there. Um, there are literally Bigfoot organizations almost in every county in Kentucky. Yeah, and it's because <laughs> there are so many Bigfoot encounters. There's so many sightings, so many, so much activity. Uh, some of the greatest evidence. I mean, some of the castings I've seen, footprints uh, have been just wonderful. I've had experiences with them up there and expeditions run into. Them. And the cave system in Kentucky, the underground cave system, is massive. And there's hollers everywhere, and there's caves that go down underground everywhere. There, So, you know, maybe there is something to that. Who knows? It's a distinct possibility, but and as we discussed before, sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's more comfortable and less scary, if you will, to uh, just dismiss it and say, oh, no, that's not possible. Yeah, and again, that's not being open-minded. I One thing I would say, too, you get for your listeners and try to be informative as I can, some of the conclusions I've gotten to over the years is I think these things can live in inhabitable places, places we could not live. They've easily adapted, and we may never find them in those places. This is true. Well, uh, like uh, the one gentleman that encountered it, he was above the tree line where it, mm. it, it's always tundra. You know, you think, well, nothing could live up there. right. But uh, maybe it's you know just as comfortable as as Bigfoot in his living room to him. Well, they seem to be able to locomote pretty well on uneven ground, uneven territory. Um, they will go from you know bipedal to quadrupedal to belly crawl. I saw one, and uh, you know, again, I saw this thing come up out of a ravine and crawl across the trail, uh, two track on the side of a ridge on a mountain. I saw it in the moonlight crawl right across the trail. It looked like a huge gray crab, if you will. And it, it was fascinating just the way it moved. And it hit the other side and went up an embankment in the woods. And I still don't know what it was. I saw it. I'm thinking Bigfoot because we heard knocks from down below. Went back to the spot. It came up onto the trail. And you can see all the grasses matted down in a very wide area. So I'm thinking that's what it was. But I, the way this thing maneuvered across uneven ground was amazing to me. So, you know, I, they can get around. They can live in places. There was a good video a few years ago out of a house in North Georgia. Georgia's the third most forested state, too. There's a lot of, and I've had a lot of activity in northern Georgia and expeditions and things, but uh, where these people saw out the back window, one of these things, basically, it was going up a vertical in the back of their property in the woods, and it was going up this vertical incline, like, wasn't even there. It just was just moving, never lost pace. You know, I saw a black bear in the Smokies once cross the road and go up a very steep incline. It wasn't 90 degrees, but it was it was steep, and it went up that thing like it wasn't even there. Uh, you know, just didn't didn't slow it down hardly at all. And I think Bigfoot's got that ability very, very much to be able to get around. And so if they can live in areas underground or where there's uh, very, very mountainous up and down, if, you know, drops and peaks and cliffs and things don't seem to bother them or above, you know, way up above weather lines, like you said, and it's, if they've adapted to all that, <laughs> you know, they could be everywhere. Literally. I know I, I actually live in Kentucky, so <laughs> I'm familiar with a lot of those. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I've said it, could, it possible could be in the field next to my house could be Bigfoot. I mean, you, you never really know. A few miles down the road, 
there's a mile long holler at the end of this holler. My family owns property up there, and and they regularly hear knocks up there uh-huh. and vocalizations. And on the other side of this holler, there is a meat processing plant. And for a while there, they were actually not doing a very good job of covering up the scraps, as it were. Interesting. So I had one another. Uh, well, as a matter of fact, it it was Bill from Mountain Monsters that said he just laughed. He said, "You've just run the rung the Bigfoot dinner buffet." <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, so th- th- in, in that particular area, you figure 140 acres. Uh, yeah, it's all hillside. I you can't see all of it once. There could be anything living up. Right. But right and. We assume. Yeah, and it, yeah. And if you accept what I said earlier, that they're always in groups. Yes. Each of them, each of them's got a job, and sure, if they're not taking care of the scraps and the processing plant, then it's ringing a dinner dinner bell, like Bill said. Bill's a great guy too. Oh yeah. And yeah, uh, great guy. Uh, uh, those guys are hilarious. Oh, all but, them, uh, yeah. I love talking to them. But you know, he's right. Ringing a dinner bell, and they're watching the behavior. To my uh, earlier observation, they're they know. Oh. They're, they put out all the scraps. Now they're all leaving the plant for the day or the processing is people that park in those cars are all gone now. I'll just run down and get it. And they do. Yeah. And they will. And they will. It's their version of Walmart. <laughs> 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 but uh, so they, let's uh, let's take a little short side step here into uh, Crypticon, the time spent up there. You had a lot of, of merchandise, including your fantastic book on on these structures. So uh, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about that and tell people what you've got available because this is useful information. Well, thank you, and I appreciate you bringing it up. Uh, Yeah, so I'm, uh, besides being a BFRO investigator, I have a partner in a business called I Know Squatch, and uh, his name is Hans Wolbrier, and he's in, we have an LLC out of Wisconsin. But years ago, we just decided that there's a lot of two-dimensional black silhouette representations of Bigfoot that are just frankly silly. Yes. Uh, say, you know, I believe or, you know, hide-and-seek champion and all that kind of thing. So we got kind of tired of that. We decided to depict Bigfoot as witnesses say they encounter it. So we have a depiction, and we've trademarked this, this stuff, but we have a depiction of it peeking around a tree, which we hear that all the time. You know, we, witnesses will say that. Uh, hunters see that a lot. They're yes. out in the woods and something, all they hear a noise and they look, something's peeking around a tree at them, looking at them, trying to see what they're there for. Now, a lot of hunters have told me I'll never go back to that area to hunt, but because well, uh, I, I've had I, I talked to and interview a lot of hunters. But uh, we did that. And then we went from that to uh, uh, we depicted kind of striding and how, as it moves, if you will, we have another one. And then we called our businesses I Know Squatch. Yes. Um, for, and we say it's for folks that know as opposed to those that just believe. And uh, so we, we've kind of marketed that a bit. We have T-shirts and hats and challenge coins and a variety of different uh, gear that we offer. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, and we have an Etsy store. And if you go to the Etsy store, I know Squatch, uh, that's where you can get the stick structure book. And I'm in my fourth edition on that, and I was just uh, talking to some folks recently about it. Uh, reviews on it have been very good. Um but I've got some great ideas for fifth edition, and I get a lot of pictures, visual evidence of this. And I'm not here to say every bent tree in the woods is a Bigfoot, but there's some that are hard to explain, and they seem to fall into consistent categories of types that they do. And I have seven categories of them listed in the – it's a field guide to Bigfoot stick structures, and it's a, 
it's a small book. You can put it's a pictorial book with descriptions and it really asks more questions and provides answers. But you can put it in your backpack, take it with you out in the woods and it helps you identify some of these things if you happen to come upon them. Well, yeah, it gives you a, a great reference point. My my brother-in-law loved that book, by the way. <laughs> it was a well, part thank of his you. Christmas present because he had <laughs> seen most of those structures. He lives on the property I was just talking about. <laughs> so well, and that's yeah, and that's great. So I love it when I hear that kind of thing because, you know, I go to a lot of shows and I speak at different shows and things, but people will come up to me and they'll grab the book and talk to me about it, and then they'll say, "I've got these on one part. We have eighty acres. I was in Virginia recently, and I said." You know, 80 acres and out they're all in this one area and that's another consistency they, when they do this kind of thing all of a sudden in one area they'll put them up sometimes they take them down within a season too but and they'll look at it and they'll point right at a picture i've seen that you know exactly oh there was several of them look just like that in that one spot and you know anytime we went up there we heard knocks or wherever we were up there, weird things had happened and trees got pushed over. You know, so there's always an accompanying activity and it's Bigfoot related type stuff. So, you know, I think it's one piece to the puzzle. I think so, too. And uh, I, I've heard similar stories uh, again with that property. And I hate to keep harping on that. But, uh, uh, yeah, if uh, some guys were bear logging and they were knocking on trees, being silly and something knocked back. <laughs> So, and my brother-in-law said it wasn't him. So now the logging slowed it down for a bit, but then the minute they stopped, you know, well, you know, within like a week of when they stopped, the noises and everything started again. I love it when you have something like that happen. Now they were just joking around and it came back to them, but I was with a group in uh, Northwest Iowa once on an expedition and we we're going to build a fire out in the woods. Cause we'll do that. Go to a spot yes. where we can be observed, build a small fire sometimes and uh, just, let them come around. If they're there, we'll do. We'll play Native American music, or we'll do things with different lights to try and attract attention. But you know, if they're around, they'll come around. But uh, we got to this site, and a couple of us had armfuls of some logs that we had brought. And we just dropped the logs, and as they hit the ground, a couple of them knocked together pretty loud. And literally within seconds, we heard a pow knock out of the woods from above us. <laughs> so and we were trying to do that. So. so uh... Apparently, Santa Claus is not the only one that's watching you. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. I mean, we were like, oh, they're here. But, you know, it's just, I love it when that kind of thing happens. Well, you know, I, I have had reports, uh, guests that say there's certain areas where the uh, creatures, Sasquatch, actually interacts with uh, with humans. And yeah, yeah. A gentleman um, from Russia that's true. Who said that... Uh, North American Bigfoot are, are much more violent than their counterparts in, in uh, like the Ukraine. Interesting. Uh, so, and, and it is interesting. So it, it makes you wonder, and I don't, I don't really think that's a governmental issue. It, it may just be geography, food supply, or anything. You never really know how it evolved. Uh, well, well, I'll tell you, you know, Charlie, I look at it this way. And there's good people and there's not so good people. Right. There's fun people and there's boring people. There's people you enjoy being around with regularly and others you don't care to see again. And it's probably the same with Bigfoot. You know, you get a lot of discussion about different types. Now, the swamp ape down in southern Florida is different from the ones in Alaska size-wise, maybe activity-wise and how they interact with nature, et cetera. And you know, the ones in East Texas are notorious for not being all that friendly. And maybe having three toes, you hear some of that. And some of them are very interactive. I have two habituation sites, so I have people with homesteads, acreage, and they have activity ongoing, and I'm in constant contact with them. And yes, I learned I learned a ton about how these things can interact. You know, 
and uh, some of the things they'll do. But uh, yeah, you can have a coexistence with these things. And it, I always kind of thought of it in the way uh, like the alligator versus crocodile. Alligators don't always attack, but crocodiles are born angry. <laughs> and it just gets mm. worse the older they get. So Interesting. <laughs> It, it's but they're they're essentially the same type of a creature. You'd think they'd have the same behavior patterns, but no, no. Crocodiles are born mad. So <laughs> but, that's insightful. But uh, and, and and it could just just be that you you, you never know. I guess there's good and bad seeds everywhere. Yeah, I think that's true. I really do think that's that's true. But I think these things have some diversity in terms of their personalities. Let's leave it at that. Well, yes, and and uh, and I I don't know why it it's it's kind of surprising to me that that people don't get that because uh, there are animals, for instance, around us on a daily basis. Dogs, cats, and everything else that people keep as pets. And they have different personalities, and they show personality. Why people would believe that out of a creature like Sasquatch, for instance, uh, is amazing. Everybody, they either don't believe or they have a cookie-cutter belief on something. And uh, neither one of those are very accurate. That's one of the reasons why it's, it's it's valuable, the information you provide, because, okay, this is what I found here. This is what I found to be the case here. So you, you can shine the light a little bit closer, you know. Uh, and, I, think they're diff- I think they're different uh, behaviorally in some ways, and they're, they're consistent in some ways, but they can be they can look different. Um, I love Sibylla Irwin, the work she does. If you ever look at any of her pictures online, you know, I encourage any of your listeners to take a look at uh, Sibylla's work, but she'll do, you know, as a witness would relate to a sketch artist mm-hmm. uh, from a crime. She'll she'll do the same type of thing, talk to witnesses and then sketch. And her illustrations are fantastic, but you see a lot of variety and what the witnesses. Now, I mean, they still have, you know, two arms, two legs, hairy creature, but right. the facial features, the look in the face, you know, uh, maybe the size of them it can be different you know some are skinnier some are squattier um and they're still bigfoot you can tell but and the right. face the facial features sometimes the face all around the faces there's no hair at, you know at all so it, you, you do see some the nose is flat on some you know others may be longer or pointier so you do see some things like that and it's fascinating i i remember reading uh, years ago and it i want to say it's it's uh by john keel uh, he was talking about ufos actually he said if uh you took an Asian, a Caucasian, an African-American, and a Native American. You put them all on a spaceship, drop them off on another planet, then the people on that planet would assume that they were different races when they're all just variations on the same human race. Mm-hmm. And and we may be making that uh, that mistake. Right. And, right. and yeah. again, it comes back to lack of... Uh, of uh, the body of information. So that's why it's good that so many people are researching and trying to to make a clear picture of a creature. Uh, there, there are, you know, there are a lot of books now. Yes, which is good. I, read, I probably read a hundred, but uh, maybe I get around to writing one on one of these days. I got sure. stacks of stuff here, but and I may. I know, I know the angle I want to take, but uh, there are a lot, and uh, some of them will reiterate though. Ape Canyon stuff and Bluff Creek and all that, and yes. Albert, o- Albert Osman and all those things. It's good for first-time readers to read that sort of thing. Uh, but some are good because they do tell uh, you know, current research, and you can juxtapose that to research years ago from the Grover Kranz type people, and you can – you can see that there is some consistency or some evolution relative to what these things are. And we do, there is collective intelligence on it, even for the amateur researchers and book writers about Bigfoot. 
there's enough there that you can understand what this is as a, you know, as a phenomenon. And, uh, you know, I think there is more, there's not acknowledgement, you know, and then you get into the government and all that kind of thing. There's not acknowledgement like there probably sh- maybe should be. And I think that's sympathetically because those, and you know, who would acknowledge, if you will, empower, et cetera, just don't know everything about it. Like we don't. Well, that's true. And, and you know, You'd mentioned camps earlier, and it's, it's kind of funny because why I say, and normally this is in reference to uh, the paranormal, but it applies uh, across the board. You usually have three camps, people that will believe in ghosts no matter what, people that won't believe in ghosts no matter what. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. the middle group of people that wonder, yeah. And, yeah. and those are the ones you need to reach out to because they have the potential to learn more because they're not either just believing or disbelieving they just want to see what's there and i think it's the same thing with bigfoot they just acknowledge the possibility and by acknowledging the possibility then you can start to gather information and uh maybe get a clearer picture and- well and if you acknowledge the possibility and you know what you just said i think you, you then want to get to the next level and you know folks say, what can i do well i keep your five senses all rolling and keep your eyes and ears open everything every noise in the woods is not a bigfoot but no. put yourself in places maybe people aren't at times and act like a hiker not a hunter and yeah, just get out there and you know you were, you were mentioned a minute ago about your property and everything and maybe you have yes. bigfoot other you never know i would say get out there and talk to them just get out and start talking to the woods you'll never know what comes back you would be surprised you might be uh, it's just like there are some nights that I know it's not a deer in my field. <laughs> Can't prove it, <laughs> but I see you know, those senses. I know it's not a deer in the field. I can't tell you, you know, how many times I've had this discussion with people say, is, do I have Bigfoot on properties? Well, talk to the woods, ask them to acknowledge if they're there, you know, maybe do a light knock and talk to the woods. Hey, I know you're there. Let me know you're there. And they knock back. Yes. All of a sudden, you get a whoop or a whistle back, or you know, there or something happens, or I've got a gift, a rock is left up against the house, or something. They, all of a sudden, they'll say, "Hey, the door's open, and we can communicate." Now you got to be careful with that. I don't think you want to create a dependency and start feeding these things. But, no. <laughs> but they will if they're there. You know, sometimes you have to start the dialogue. It's true. So, what would be the best way for people to to contact you? or for them to get some of the information that you share about these creatures. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I mentioned the Etsy store relative to the Stick Structure book. That's a great place. I know Squatch. Uh, take a look at that. Uh, we do post different things on Instagram on a regular basis. Facebook will up- update some things relative to scouting and different areas we're in and things. So that's another way. But if people want to talk about any of it, my, I'm not afraid. I have it on my on the back of the stick structure book, but my email is rrrwhoop, W-H-O-O-P, at gmail.com. And glad to dialogue or talk with any, anybody about it. And, uh, you know, I, I look at it kind of at this point, uh, I'm glad to, and I appreciate you having me on, but I think some of my role in this is to be able to talk about the subject matter and podcasts like yourself and try to get out. So your listeners try to get out what I've known about this, what I've learned. I'm still learning. And then uh, we do go to some different shows and things. So uh, we'll be at, and I speak at different conferences about a lot of this, but uh, I'll be at a number of them this year. I'll be in Gatlinburg um, in July. We'll be in 
Marion, North Carolina for, uh, that's a big, that's a big festival. I think that's in May. It'll be in Townsend, yes. Tennessee. There's one of, yeah, one of them coming up in May also. Uh, probably be in Westminster, South Carolina in the fall. So there's a number of different ones. I'm signing up for different ones right now that we'll be a part of. And I'd love to have people come on up and talk to me about it. And you'll be posting your times like on your Facebook and everything so that people yeah. can follow. Well, yep, we, yeah, yeah, we'll po- we'll po- we'll be posting uh, different things that we're going to be be at, and I love being at the shows. People come to the booth and talk to me about their different encounters and say, "Hey, I heard you on uh, this podcast, and I want to talk to you about the situation." And you know, just what do you think? And uh, they'll tell me things, and yeah, I love that. It's it's great to talk with people about. It. Sometimes it's the first time they've been able to open up about it, and uh, that you know that's meaningful. That's why I like doing the investigation work too and reaching out to folks. Uh, you know, some folks will shut down on this, but sometimes, you know, the adventurers will want to talk about it and try to understand more. You know, there's, I think there's a number of folks like myself out there that are glad to jump into the conversation with them and try to learn. And we're still learning about this. Well, definitely. And and I, I agree that the convention circuit is, is an excellent way to connect with people, because if they've heard you talk about this before, then they have that that layer of connectivity so that they'd be more inclined to open up. I, I've talked to people, just spoke to a gentleman yesterday that had an encounter in 1975, mm. and mm. He, he didn't speak about this for decades. And a lot of people have that hesitance. So people like yourself that uh, has experience in the field and is receptive to messages and things of that nature, uh, people feel comfortable talking to you because one of the things that people are always trying to get around when they see something that's odd and out of the ordinary is like, is this person going to think I'm nuts when I say that I saw this? <laughs> and I, I laugh because it, it's ludicrous. It should never be that way. We should all be open-minded enough to at least hear someone out. But a lot of people do hesitate because of that uh, that fear of, of being belittled and being ostracized. So it's great yes, that sir. you can do that. Yeah, yes, I do. And I think, you know, generations from now, it'll be more commonly talked about. And, you know, I guess our point in time where we are is, is where we are. So, you know, share share what we know, share what we experienced, uh, invite discussion about it. But we get nowhere by dismissing it or by belittling it or belittling those that have had an experience I can't explain and it is amazing when you get somebody to come forward. And like you said, from the seventies, I had a witness that was on property not long ago, reached out to us in 1993 was some activity that he took me right on property, showed me where he saw the thing. He had his pistol out, was pointing right at it. And he said he could smell the breath. It was breathing right down at him for about eight feet above. Okay. And he's scared to death. But you know, that 1993, you know, that's a long time ago. He just came forward. And so, you know, I, there's a lot of knowledge out there yet to be learned. I agree. And we, we need to make it easier for people to share that knowledge. But, well, for the moment, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. And I really appreciate you being on the podcast. And uh, hopefully we'll connect you with a lot of other seekers so that you can share the information and maybe get more information. Well, I appreciate being on this, Charlie. I enjoyed the discussion. I appreciate your approach to it. And I think you're doing a great service by you know providing a podcast like this where you can bring folks on to talk about subjects that don't get the daily attention maybe they should and uh that's just so this is the way we're communicating about this kind of thing these days and i think you know it's great to have somebody like you invite 
Well, I definitely appreciate that. And it is really all about keeping an open mind. Yep, absolutely. Well, on that note, you have a wonderful evening, and uh, hopefully we will be talking to you again soon. Yeah, I'd love to do it again someday. So uh, please keep me on your active list. And next time you want to talk about this or any aspect of Bigfoot research, paranormal research associated with it, I'm glad to talk about it. There's a lot of other areas we could go with it, and I'm glad to share uh, experience, uh, handle any questions you might have, or just talk about any aspects of this phenomenon with you. So uh, we'll do it another time. I definitely will look forward to that. And and to be honest about it, if you wanted to uh, get a couple of, you know, like you said, your partner there and maybe a couple other people and have a joint interview, that would be fantastic as well. Sounds good. Yeah, no, look forward to it. We'll do something like that another time. Definitely. Well, thank you very much and, and keep hunting or keep looking. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, keep looking. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Charlie. This is Charles Romans, and on behalf of myself and our guests, thank you for joining us on this walk through the shadows of legend. If you like what you heard, please follow us and visit our website at shadowsoflegend.com and support our Patreon page to help keep the content flowing. And if you would like to be a guest and share your own brush with a stranger paranormal, don't hesitate to email us and include a contact number. The strange and surreal, the normal and the paranormal are all aspects of the world in which we live. As you reflect upon the stories we have shared, keep in mind that the people sharing these stories are actual, real people just like us. Were the stories shared compelling enough to be given credibility, or should they be relegated to the deeper part of the shadows? But when determining this, it might be a good idea to keep an open mind, because when we look around, we might discover that our own world is less brightly lit than we once thought. Until next time, I'll be waiting for you in the shadows of legend.